So here now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the ninth chapter, verses 57 through 62, actually finishing up the chapter. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. May the Lord bless this poignant, driving word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him for illumination. Our dear Lord, um, these are straightforward words. And for some of us, they're words that are going to sting when we unravel them and see the fullness of what you're saying and just beginning a long discussion of discipleship in Luke's gospel. I pray that um, as you throw up obstacles for our own discipleship, that we recognize that those obstacles are to test our faith and to be overcome, and that we would do just that, that we would use this and other passages like it as mirrors to look at into our own hearts, our own souls, our own discipleship, the way that we follow you, and, and, and to ask the hard questions and Whatever the obstacle is, whatever the ditch might be, wherever it is, would you please give us the strength and the power to overcome those so that we might bring glory to the kingdom, bear the fruit that you want us to, and keep our eyes on our destination. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, this morning I want to present you with a puzzle. Of sorts, the discipleship puzzle. Now, I don't mean by that that it's puzzling that we're going to try to figure out what it means. I mean an actual puzzle, like a jigsaw puzzle that you have all of these different little parts and pieces and none of them actually seem to tell the story until you get them all on the table and you begin to fit them together. And and, and when you fit all the pieces of this puzzle together, then you have a, a good picture. You understand what it all means. Now, when we talk about discipleship, and in particular, the kind of discipleship that Jesus is calling his kingdom dwellers to, which is radical discipleship, when we talk about that kind of discipleship, the pieces of that puzzle are spread throughout all of his, I mean, all of scripture. And so we're not going to solve the puzzle this morning, but we are going to get a start on it. Because I said, Luke is, is really focusing on discipleship in this particular part of his gospel, discipleship and the nature of the kingdom of God. So towards that end, what I want to do, we have three negative examples of discipleship before us. Actually, we have three examples of how not to be a disciple. So what I want to do is I want to bring some other pieces of the puzzle and at least put them out on the table for us. So as we go through the text, 
We can, and I make reference to them. Well, you're familiar with what I'm making reference to. So let, let me explain what those other pieces are from different parts of Scripture. First of all, and I know that I keep going back to this analogy over and over again, but that uh, that that parable of the sower and the four soils, uh, where a sower went out and he sowed his seeds into various kinds of soil. What we're going to see in these disciple wannabes two of those types of soils and what happens when that becomes a problem. So that's the first one. Then there's another one. This is going to come from later on in Luke, Luke 14. Let me read it for you. Jesus talking again about a commitment. He says, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Well, that also is going to be one of the pieces of our puzzle because one of these disciple wannabes is not going to count the cost of what it means to be a disciple. So that's going to enter into it. The third of these puzzle pieces is a very famous verse. We're going to refer to it over and over again. We'll set of verses. And then this comes from Matthew 7 when Jesus is getting to the end of his great Sermon on the Mount. We read the, the verses just prior to this. But Jesus tells us that our walk with him is like going through a narrow gate. And a narrow gate that strips us of pretensions and presuppositions. Reading from Matthew 7 verses 13 and 14. He says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Now, we're not going to be looking at any of these from the context of salvation, but rather from the context of discipleship. And so what Jesus calls us to is to get through this narrow gate, leave all the baggage that we have in this world behind. We get just enough room for us to squeeze through. And then we find ourselves on a narrow road, a straight and narrow road with a ditch on the right and a ditch on the left. We're going to see one of these men fall into one ditch and the other one fall into the other one. And we're going to be called to keep our eyes on our destination. The fourth piece of this puzzle is one that we have also referred to quite often. Going back earlier in this same chapter of Luke, Jesus gave the example of picking up our cross and following him. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Later on, he's going to get a little bit more poignant about it when he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, we've talked about what that means, the imagery there. When you saw someone walking through town bearing their own cross, it, it is not necessarily just saying that person's going to die. What does it say? It's saying is that everything that person used to be before they picked up that cross is gone. It's over. It didn't matter who he was. His previous identity is gone. He's a corpse walking because there's nothing that stands before him except for that cross. The Romans were very good at what they did. So Jesus Jesus uses this as an example of when you pick up the, when you decide to follow me and be a disciple, whatever you were is in the past. Your occupation from now on is Christian and, and, and your destination is that celestial city. 
And then finally, and this is the last piece, and the reason I'm giving to you these in the beginning is that we're going to refer to them as we go through this. This is kind of the result of what's going to happen as Jesus throws up obstacles to these three men. We're going to see that when he told his disciples about the vine, the branches, and the vine dresser, it applies perfectly. From John 15, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Well, we are going to see that process going on today. That process of throwing up obstacles for disciple wannabes that will either be the the, the stopping point or it will be something to overcome, to be pruned. Because that's how we grow and that's how we bear more fruit. So with all of those pieces on the table, let's take a look at these other three. And hopefully you will see how they all relate. But let's go ahead and put this in its context. If you were here last week, if you weren't here, let me go ahead and tell you that we have just passed in the 51st verse of this ninth chapter a major turning point in Luke's gospel. The so-called great Galilean ministry is over, it's finished, and now he has resolutely turned his face towards Jerusalem and entered what is quite often called the Perean ministry. Now, in the Galilean ministry that has come before, Luke's primary theme was to introduce Jesus as the divine, supernatural, miracle-working Son of God, God incarnate in human flesh. That has been his focus during the Galilean ministry. But now... Time is growing short, only a matter of months before Jesus goes to the cross. And so he's turned his face towards Jerusalem. And in this period, there are two things that are really going to kind of dominate Luke's gospel. This is going to take us all the way to the triumphal entry, by the way, in the 19th chapter. But two things are dominating his, 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 his themes here. One is the nature of the kingdom of God. And we're going to have so many just wonderful, rich parables along that line. But also, it's about the subjects of that kingdom um, defining discipleship for us. So the, the, this is going to be a period of time that we really focus on the development of these apostles and disciples. Now, towards that end, we have already seen some of that take place. We have already seen in the transfiguration the glory of Christ revealed. But we have also seen in the apostles particularly that their heads are still stuck in the world. Now, Part of the problem with these three disciple wannabes is that they're still stuck in the world and they can't free themselves from it. Well, the same problem is going on with the apostles. You remember Peter up on the Mount of Transfiguration and that blunder that he did. Then when they came down and the other nine apostles were unable to cast out that demon because they were still thinking in worldly terms. And then after they left that mountain, the argument over who would be greatest in the kingdom of God. And then James and John making that disturbing miscalculation that they were missionaries of judgment rather than missionaries of mercy. All of this has been leading now to the continuation of the understanding of 
discipleship. These are all kinds of pieces of the puzzle as well. Then, of course, we learned about the importance of humility when they had that argument. We learned about the exclusive in. I got that backwards. Inclusive exclusivity of the kingdom of God. That it was going to span all races, tribes, languages, and countries. And then finally last week, that we are in a time of mercy. There will be a time of judgment. And in fact, judgment, I'm sorry, mercy presupposes judgment. Because if you don't have any judgment, you don't have any accountability for sinfulness, then mercy is really not mercy at all, is it? But all of those things have now kind of been wrapping together to bring us to the place where we are um, in the Gospels. And, 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 and I will warn you just a little bit. Um, I can't tell you how many times over the years I have heard it said, um, either directly to me or other people have said it about this church. You know, we, we like your church, but I don't really go to church to be convicted. Um, I go to church to be make feel better. I, I need to be encouraged and comforted. And I, I don't necessarily need to be convicted uh, of, of my lack of discipleship. Well, if that's you, I'm really sorry um, because the next 10 chapters of Luke are going to hammer you as far as discipleships. And if you have a problem with it, don't come to me. Go to Jesus because he's the one saying it, not me. And, and, and that's what we're going to see this morning. This is very strong as far as what Jesus has to say about what it means to be a true disciple of his. So with that said, let's jump into our text. First of all, let's kind of set the scene, and then we'll see these three disciple wannabes. Look in verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, now let's just stop it there. Um, where are we and, and, and what's going on? Well, if, if we were just reading Luke's gospel and we didn't have the other, we would think and we would assume that, well, he was just in a, a, a Samaritan village and they just asked him to leave. So we know he's turned his face toward Jerusalem. So we would assume that he's on the road to Jerusalem somewhere in Samaria. That, that's what kind of would make sense as far as Luke's gospel is concerned. But what makes this confusing? You know, Luke, and we've seen this over and over again, Luke loves to give us these sort of uh, random periods, uh, statements of time and, and, and place. And he doesn't really describe where we are. But then he's the great historian who's given us so many facts and figures that the other ones haven't. So whenever he does this, so many people assume that he's just taking something totally out of time and organizing it thematically. And in particular here, we know that two out of three of these disciple wannabes, we go back to Matthew's gospel and Matthew has the same two kind of arguments and very specific about time and place. Back in Galilee, just getting ready to get into the boat to go to the other side to where he's going to confront and heal that garrisoned demoniac or gathering demoniac, depending on which gospel you're reading. Well, most commentators and scholars, and I'm certainly not going to argue with them because they're much smarter than I am, most of them say that what Luke has done is just kind of take these two um, events out of sequence of time and plug them right to, in, into this place. 
But I'm not so sure that that's, I agree with that. Because after all, Luke says that as they were going along the road, not as they were getting ready to get into a boat. And so my only question would be this. It, it are, these are kind of common excuses. If, if you are involved with ministry long enough, um, you find out that people's excuses are very similar to each other. I mean, over the past 20 years of being a pastor, I mean, I can tell you that there, I can almost tell you what some of the excuses are going to be when people tell me why they cannot serve or why they cannot tithe or why they cannot go on a mission trip or why they can't serve as an officer. The, the, the excuses are very much the same. So it's not a far-fetched idea that this would have been other people besides those that Matthew's talking about, even though Luke uses some of the language, but in a different place. So actually, I'm going to stick with Luke's version. I'm, I'm not going to take it and say that this is just Luke taking what happened way up in Galilee already in the past and plugging it in right here thematically. I'm, I'm going to say that probably that these three men were on the road with him someplace in Samaria, and this is where that happened. Now, why, why is that of any significance whatsoever? Well, it, 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 especially right here where it says, and someone said to him. Well, if we go back to Matthew's gospel, that someone was a scribe. And the scribes were the sworn enemies of Christ. They couldn't stand him. So either this man is coming in sarcasm and saying this, or, boy, he's a, a major convert. And so there's much to be said about this first disciple wannabe if he's a scribe. But you see, Luke purposely leaves out any details about him. If indeed he's taking this from Matthew, he purposely doesn't tell us that this man's a scribe. So I'm not going to describe him as such. And I think that the reason that Luke does that is he wants all of us to associate with this. He's writing to a Gentile audience. He doesn't want us to attribute this particular attribute or these excuses to some scribe living 2,000 years ago. These are very current, very relevant to all of us. So, as we go on, let's go ahead and meet the first disciple wannabe and learn how not to be a disciple. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, again, Luke doesn't give us any details about this. Um, apparently, this person just comes up to Jesus out of the blue, walking along in his entourage. We know there's probably a very good number of people following Jesus, walking along behind him and says, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, there's no... There's no qualification to that. It's, it's not, I'll follow you to the other side, or I'll follow you to Jerusalem, or as Peter said, I'll follow you in death. He just says, I'll follow you everywhere. The, the man is obviously overwhelmed with his own enthusiasm. He is a very enthusiastic and zealous man because he wants to say, man, I tell you what, I'm with you. I'm wherever you go, I'm right there beside you. I'll follow you to that place. Now, Jesus knows better. And, 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 and so, so he doesn't respond and say, wow, that is really great. You know, I'm so happy you're, you're willing to go. He, he, he recognizes in this man that the man has not counted the cost of discipleship. So Jesus immediately tells him some of the things that he has to look forward to if he is one of his disciples. 
And Jesus says in the, 30, in the 58th verse, And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He uses two examples or illustrations out of the natural world. And both of them are examples that kind of speak of a home of sorts. First of all, he says, foxes have holes. And I hear that, or I read, that foxes were quite prevalent in Palestine in those days, kind of like squirrels would be to us. They're all over the place. And they would make lairs in either craggy places, little caves, or they would actually dig holes in the ground. Now, they would go out and hunt their small game, but where they went to sleep, when they would find refuge and solace and protection, where they would raise their youngs, where they would find comfort would be a hole that they would make for themselves. And the birds of the air, we see them flying around going after seeds or insects or worms or, or, or little lizards or whatever they eat. And, but they also, they, 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 they build nests so that they can have a place to lay their eggs. And, and, and there's few pictures of the comfort of home that are more expressive to us than a, a, a mother bird with her wings spread over her chicks. In fact, we use that word, don't we? Nesting to talk about a couple perhaps that is preparing their home for a family. We say that they're, they're nesting. So both of those examples that Jesus uses are examples of the comforts of home, the, the comforts of this world, the, the creature comforts that even the animals have. But Jesus says the son of man has Nowhere to lay his head. Now, before, before we go any farther with that, I want you to see the extraordinary paradox of what he says. He uses the title for himself, Son of Man. Now, we've talked about that. That doesn't just mean his humanity. That is Jesus in the cosmic sense of the Messiah, of the Christ, of the culmination of all redemptive history. It speaks of his crucifixion, his atonement, his resurrection, his ascension, his coronation of King of kings and Lord of lords, and the fact that he will rule that kingdom and come again one day. Everything is wrapped up in into what he means by the Son of Man. John refers to this as he says that the, the Logos. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Everything that was made was made by him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. And that Son of Man has no place to lay his head. We have no indication from the Bible that after he left his father's home in Nazareth, which would have been very simple, that he owned anything. But the clothes on his back. And those were probably given to him. He slept in other people's homes. He ate other people's food. And I mean it doesn't mean that he. When I say he was impoverished. I mean personally impoverished. I mean there were people who provided for the ministry. And for his needs. But he personally owned nothing. He had no place to lay his head. And yet there's a lot of false teachers out there. Telling you that what Jesus actually wants to do. Is to make you rich. To make you prosperous. To give you health. That makes a mockery of the life of Jesus folks. Because Jesus was not like that. He had no place to raise to, to lay his head. And so he tells this man. That comes and says. I'll follow you anywhere. Have you counted the cost. Of what it means. To be my disciple. 
because it is great. Now, I want you to notice the modus operandi that Jesus is using here. I want you to notice his method. Because what he is doing, he's taking he's going to the same method with all three of these men. The, the man makes a statement of enthusiasm. And Jesus looks through it, sees the hypocrisy. And so, therefore, he takes it, turns it into an obstacle that he puts in front of him, a hurdle. Now, one of two things is going to happen with that obstacle and hurdle. Either it's going to stop him or he's going to overcome it. And that goes back to the vine and the vine dresser. Because if he stops, he becomes dead wood. If he overcomes it, he's being pruned. And so, therefore, what we're going to see is Jesus throw up obstacles in each one of these people. Now, we're not told actually the way this turns out with them, with each one of them. We're actually going to consider that a little bit later on. But I also want you to see see something else. Remember, these are all pieces of puzzle on the table. We're trying to fit them together. That one of those puzzles was the, 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 the parable of the sower and the four soils. Well, brothers and sisters, we have one of the soils here. This enthusiasm that is so great until he hits the reality of of the cost that it is, is just like the seed that was planted in the rocky soil. That because of the warmth of the rock and the shallowness of the soil just shoots up with enthusiasm. But as soon as the sun comes out, as soon as the rain stops, as soon as the hurdles appear, that's when they fold or they wither. So, in other words, this is an illustration exactly of that situation. And brothers and sisters, this is not an uncommon problem. We see it all the time. We see people get get so turned on for the Lord and so excited. And, you know, they look at us who have been walking with the Lord for a while. And you say, what a bunch of old fuddy-duddies. What a bunch of wet blankets. Why don't you get excited with me? Well... I've seen so many people that we've taken out on the mission field and they get so excited, but then they aren't thinking about what they're going to find. They're not thinking about living with no plumbing, with no electricity, eating strange foods, living in the midst of bugs and dirt. They have no idea what they're facing. And when they get there, they're mortified. And all of a sudden their enthusiasm fizzles. So that's what Jesus is doing with this man is presenting him with an obstacle, and hopefully what will happen is he will overcome that obstacle. But we certainly don't know that he will. Okay, so let's take a look at the second disciple wannabe. This is a man who could not count the cost. Let's see what this one is about. Look in verse 59. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, notice again Luke's anonymity. He doesn't tell us like Matthew does that this was a disciple. He just says another. Okay, so he's keeping this extremely anonymous. Now, Jesus says to this man. Now, the first man came up and seemed to just blurt this out to Jesus. But Jesus seems to be the instigator here. And he turns to another man, apparently on the road, going not towards Galilee, but towards Jerusalem, or at least away from Galilee. And he says to the man, follow me. Well, that word is the same word that, for instance, he used of Matthew when he went to Matthew and called him. And, and he, we said he saw a publican named Levi, and he said to him, follow me. 
Earlier we read that story, that verse about picking up your cross and following Jesus. That's the same word. Jesus formally invites this man to be a disciple. And the man is going to refuse. But he's not going to come right out and say, no, Jesus, I don't want to be your disciple. He's going to go, I can just see him stuttering and saying, well, you know something? I'd love to be your disciple, but... Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Let me just point something out. There are two words in that verse that simply cannot be in the same thought. I'm going to wait till the next wannabe to bring it out. But you cannot have the word Lord and the word but in the same thought. And have the Lord remain the Lord. We'll get to that in a moment. But anyway, this man... Says Jesus, uh, allow me to go and bury my father. Now that seems like a valid request, doesn't it? I mean, who would deny a man mourning and grieving over the loss of his father and, and, and not allow him to go home? And in fact, this was this was something of high priority among the Jews. So most of the Jews would have listened to this and said, man, he's a good son. He wants to go bury his father and, and, and honor his father in that way. And, and who on earth would stand in his way? Because that was of the greatest priority. In fact, there was only one position in all of Israel that preempted dropping everything and going and burying your father. And that was a, a, a chief priest who was in the process of serving. And they were the only ones that were actually given a pass. You can't leave because you're serving the Lord in this time. And you can't leave. Otherwise, everyone would go home to bury their father. So why is Jesus going to answer this man so harshly as he does in the continuation of this? Well, the reason is because... None of that applies to this man. You see, in Israel in those days, it was like very many developing countries today. Um, when someone died, you buried him in the same day. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? I mean, they, they, they buried Ananias even before Sapphira's wife knew about it. Um, they, you would go right away because there's no, there were no morgues. There's no refrigeration. And bad things begin to happen to bodies after a person dies. When we go to Haiti, it's the same situation up where we go in the Plateau Central. There, there, there are no morgues. There, there's no refrigerated place to put a, a dead body. So, I mean, we've been up there on several occasions where someone has died either the day before or, or overnight. And immediately there's a funeral that very day. In fact, I, I have uh, uh, been asked to bring the message at such a funeral before. And so the, the, if, if this man had lost his father, the point is this. He would not be headed down the road in the opposite direction of Galilee. If his father had died in reality, all he had to do is go to Jesus and say, Lord, my father has just died and I just heard about it. Give me leave to run home and bury him and honor him. And then I will be right back as soon as I can make it. He doesn't say that. He says, let me go home and bury my father. But his father is alive and probably well and, and, and might be in perfect health. You see, it's a lame excuse. The, the man just doesn't want to go on the road with Jesus. And Jesus understands that. He sees right through it. 
because he, otherwise he would have been rushing home. Now, I've, I, I've read this passage dozens of times, and I've preached on it more than once. And I never caught something that John MacArthur brought out in, in his commentary on this. And, and I, the more I think about it, the more I think he's absolutely right. He says that the reason that the man wanted to go home, the reason that he said, I've got to go and take care of my father first and bury him, is not because he is so concerned in his father. It's because he's concerned in his inheritance. If he's on the road with Jesus someplace else off in the foreign place and his father dies, he's not going to get his inheritance. His brothers are going to get it or somebody else is going to get it. So he says, I need to go home and make sure that I get what's coming to me and then I'll follow you. Oh, that's not, that's, that, that, that's not the real discipleship. And that's the reason I believe that Jesus actually says what he says. It, it's, it, it's, it, it's kind of harsh. But once again, I want you to see a, a soil type out of that parable of the sower and the soils. Because this man is so entangled with the world, he, he's being choked out by the thorns. We, we saw one of the seeds that, that grew in the midst of the thorns. The thorns grew up and choked the very life out of it. Well, if, if, we're, if we're still trapped in the world and, and, and it's more important to us than Jesus, then guess what? Those worldly cares are going to choke the life out of our discipleship. We're going to end up looking after those instead of following Jesus. And as I said, that's the reason I believe Jesus is so harsh in what he says. He says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Wow, that's kind of harsh, isn't it? And, and to the unbelieving ear, or the person who reads this that doesn't bother reading the rest of Scripture, he says, that's, that's not necessary. In fact, that's senseless, if not downright cruel. But... If indeed this man was mourning over his dead father and Jesus said something like this, they might have the they might have a case. But see, Jesus was looking right through the man's lame excuse. See, he, he's, he's not not going on the road with Jesus, not being a disciple because he's concerned about his father. He's too trapped in the world. And so Jesus is going to throw up the the obstacle in his path. He's going to take his excuse and turn it into a hurdle that is either going to stop him or he is going to have to look at it and see what it says about himself. Um, now, in looking at what Jesus says, the first thing that we can notice about it is that it's not physical. Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. Um, Dead people don't bury people. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, but they don't. Um, dead people don't do anything. So obviously Jesus is not talking about a physical situation. It's figurative and it's spiritual. And, and, and basically what I think Jesus is saying here is, and again, our whole focus is on discipleship and not on salvation here. What he is saying is that you have a higher calling. There is another task that you are called through for. And it is not making sure that you get your inheritance. Because if you go back, you are going to sink in a quagmire. You're going to fall into a ditch. And there's nothing at the bottom of those ditch but a thorn patch. And they're going to grow up and choke you. And you'll go home and you'll never come back. That will be the end of your discipleship. So you, you, you need to turn around. Because I have a task for you. There's something that you need to be doing a much higher calling. 
And that's when Jesus says, but it's for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Go and do what we read in 633. Seek first God's kingdom and its righteousness. And all these other things, everything else will fall into place because you will be pursuing the greatest of all callings, which is to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so make up your mind, but don't fool yourself. Don't lie to yourself. Don't convince yourself that you're doing something laudable and good when actually all you're doing is finding an excuse not to follow Jesus. And so we see a a, a vast difference between the two. Okay, so we've seen one man who didn't count the cost. And we've seen another man now who counted the cost and wasn't willing to pay it. Let's see what the third one is. Again, this is, this is peculiar to Luke. It's not found in Matthew. Look from verse 61. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Okay. Notice... What the man says, he says, I will follow you, Lord, but impossible juxtaposition of words. That means two words that are put next to each other that can't possibly be in the same thought. Because if you call Jesus Lord, if you call him kurios in the Greek, if you say that he is the sovereign Lord and master of your life, then whatever Jesus says, you would be completely and totally obedient to, submissive to, subservient to. When a, a Lord, a master, even an earthly king tells a subject what to do, there is no but. There, there's no possibility of but. Because if the but is allowed, then the Lord is not sovereign. It diminishes the Lord. If the Lord is sovereign, then the but is impossible. The man brings up an an argument, but in doing so, what he is saying is that you are not my Lord and master. You have told me what you wanted me to do. You've said, follow me. What is the, 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 the main subject here? But I have something else to do. I have another direction. And, and this is one of those things, brothers and sisters, that if we begin to look down our long bony noses of judgmentalism at this, we forget to look at ourselves in a mirror. How often do we do this? Where the Lord tells us something to do and we say, but. You know, Lord, I will follow you anywhere you go. But there, (laughs) anywhere, but there, I will do anything you ask me to do, but that. Don't ask me to do that. Just please don't ask me to do that. I will share the gospel of the kingdom around the whole world, but don't ask me to share it to him or to her. I will dedicate the rest of my life to being your disciple, but not now. Always tomorrow. In varying degrees, brothers and sisters, I can't count the number of times that I say but. And if I really understand who Jesus is, sovereign Lord of the universe who created me and created the stars under which I walk at night, I can't say but. And yet I do, to my shame. 
And I think that all of us do to one degree or another. But anyway, the man has an argument. Once again, he says, but let me go first and say farewell to those at my home. Now, once again, doesn't that sound like a valid request? I mean, I'm going to go home and tell my folks that I'm following you so they won't worry. You know, and I'll write them once I get to Jerusalem. So, you know, I don't want you to worry. I'm going to be with Jesus. And so, therefore, just want to tell them where I am. And, and after all, it would appear on the surface that there was a, a scriptural precedent for this. Remember the story of Elijah and Elisha? When Elijah called Elisha to be a prophet and follow him? It was right after uh, Elijah hears that still, small voice, you know, that great passage. Well, the Lord tells Elijah, I want you to go find Elisha. And I want you to throw your cloak over him and, and call him into the prophetic office to follow you and to take your place when I, I call you home. He doesn't say all that, but that's kind of what happened. So Elijah goes and finds Elisha and he finds him plowing his field of, of all things, right? Uh, he finds him plowing his field with a team of 12 oxen. Does that sound strange to you? Well, I'll talk about it later because that's a sign of extraordinary wealth. Nobody plows with 12 oxen. But anyway, that's what Elisha is doing. And so Elijah throws his cloak over him and then walks on down the road. And first of all, Elisha doesn't know what on earth happened to him. Then he recognizes that he has just been called of God through this throwing on the cloak to be a prophet. And this is what we read, 1 Kings 19.20. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said... Let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. Doesn't that sound like what this man is asking for? Pretty much the same thing, right? Let me go home and say farewell to my folks, and then I'll follow you anywhere. Elisha says, let me go home and kiss my mother and father, and then I will follow you. But there's a difference, and we need to make sure that we see the difference, the profound difference between the two. And... We, this is implied because we get this from how Jesus answers the man, not just uh, what, what is actually said. Because let's read what actually happens to Elisha after he goes and catches up with Elijah. And, 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 he, and he tells them, you know something, I'm, I'm going to go home and kiss my mom and dad. And Elijah says, listen, that's between you and the Lord. The Lord told me to throw my cloak on you. I did it and I'm out. You know, you either come or you don't. But that's not my, my, my problem. So look what Elisha does. He goes home, returns from following him, and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he rose, and then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Okay, notice what Elisha does. This is ever much as, 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 as a breaking of the past as picking up your cross and following Christ. In fact, this verse will the same thing. He goes back. He does exactly what he said he was going to do. He kisses his mother and father. And then he takes this 12 oxen team. Now, even today, again, when we go to Haiti, the people who have oxen who have a bull there that's that's wealth i mean that's like having a uh you know a, a ready-made income because you rent that bull out and most people don't own a bull and if you want to plow you're either going to do it by hand or you can have this bull come and do it for you in no time but no one that i know of 
plows with 12 oxen. That, that's like pulling a plow with a Rolls Royce or something. I mean, that is a sign of wealth. And what it means is that Elisha had something to leave behind. He didn't just uh, uh, leave nothing behind. He had some resources and value. But what did he do? He took those bulls and he sacrificed them to the Lord. And then he took that wood of those yokes and he started a fire. And then he took the meat of those uh, oxen and boiled them and fed the whole community. You can feed a lot of people on 12 bulls. And then he says, that's it. I'm picking up my cross. I am following Elijah. And he never looked back. Now this man has obviously already made it a commitment or he wouldn't be in the middle of Samaria following Jesus. Okay? So for this man to come and say, hey, listen, I will follow you anywhere, but let me let me go home uh, and, and say farewell to everybody. It would be just like Elisha about a month later, maybe even a year later, saying to Elijah, boy, Elijah, I'm really getting homesick. Uh, can I go home and kiss my mom and dad again? You know, it's really, it's just, there's this pull on me and I just can't seem to let it go. And you see, that's the problem that this man is facing. He says, I'm following Christ. He says, I'll pick up my cross and follow you. But actually, the grappling hooks of his culture are still in his flesh and holding him back. And so he's looking back. He's looking behind him. He's he's taking his eyes off of what Christ has called him to do, and he's looking back. And that's why Jesus says what he says. He says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, actually, that's a proverb that is not original with Jesus. In fact, it was first written by a man named Hesiod, a Greek man some 800 years earlier, but obviously was still circulating around the Hebrew um, thought. But it certainly applies to so many different um, uh, situations. So the basis of the proverb is this, and, and I guess that most of us are sort of out of this because... I'm not going to ask you for hands. I doubt many of us have plowed a field with a hand plow and a horse or an oxen. You know, that's something that's kind of foreign to us. But I am told this is what you do. You've got a field. You've got uh, an ox or whatever in front of you. And what your idea is to plow the whole field. Now, when you plow a field, there's kind of two things you want to do. One is to turn the soil over so it's aerated, so it's easier for the roots of the new plant to grow in it. But also to sort of form rows so that there's a little gully between the rows. Now, at times of heavy rainfall, that is drainage to the plant. In in the time of lighter rainfall, it kind of catches the water so that the plants can soak them back up. It, it, It makes for a better plant. But what you want to do is you want to you you, you want to, to to plow a straight row. So I'm told what you do is you, you start in one part of your field and you look across the field and you find an object exactly in a straight line. And then without taking your eye off that object, you plow a straight row. And then from then on, you're looking at the row next to it to make sure that the row you're plowing is also straight until you finish the whole field. Now, what Jesus is saying, it is ludicrous to be plowing and looking behind you and saying, boy, look how nice and neat my rows are. Because you're going to go this way or that way and cut right across the fields and it's going to be a disaster. 
So the proverb is simply anyone who's going to plow like that when they're looking behind doesn't know how to plow and needs to get out from behind the plow and let somebody get there who knows what they're doing. They're not fit to plow the field. Except Jesus puts it in so more poignant language. Again, we're not talking about salvation here. We're talking about discipleship. He says, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. You're not fit for the calling that has been given you. You're not fit for the privilege that you have been given to be a disciple of the living God and to, and to do the work of the kingdom of God. If you're looking behind you and you're trying to see what's going on back there and you are you 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 still have your the the world still has its hooks in you and you're trying to dance between the two, keep your eyes on the past and still go forward, you're going to fall into a ditch. That's kind of the analogy that We've been growing with as we go through this. So let me step back. Well, by the way, again, Jesus throws an obstacle up in front of the man. Sees right through his argument, recognizes the hypocrisy. So he throws the thing up and says, listen, you know, your eyes are either on the kingdom of God or they're not. So what will happen to the man? Well, let me see if I can kind of... Get step back a little bit and let's get all these pieces now that we have on the table and let's see what it is that Jesus is saying. And again, my disclaimer, this is not necessarily what those who just want to be nominal Christians, Sunday only Christians, you know, not necessarily what you want to hear. But this is what Jesus has to say. And, and, and it's just a smattering of what he has to say. He tells us that there's a narrow gate that we he wants us to go through. And when we pass through that narrow gate, it's it's like our pretensions, our presuppositions, what we think discipleship is going to be, what we think that a, a, a kingdom dweller is going to be like needs to be left behind because there, there's no room in that narrow gate except for us. And then we find ourselves on the hard road. There's an easy road that everyone else is going to take. It's broad. There's no problems. But here we have a very narrow road. And it's straight. And there's a ditch on the right. And there's a ditch on the left. You stray either way, you're going to fall into a ditch. And the ditch on the right was that that, that disciple wannabe who didn't count the cost. He, he, he wasn't thinking about what it was going to cost him. And what he would have to give up. He thought it was all adventuring. Great. Let's go man. Let's hit the heavies. And, the, and let's do the work of the kingdom. Not realizing that all of the creature comforts that we have. He would have to give up. And when he had to face that hurdle. One of two things is going to happen. Either he's going to learn to deal with it. Or he's going to fall into the ditch on the right. Because down in that ditch is the shallow soil. And the other man, he's got another situation. He's counted the cost, but he's not sure he wants to expend that cost. It's too great. And so therefore, I'm just going to go back and I'm going to wait till I am very secure. I'm comfortable. Comfortable. I have my inheritance in line. My family is there. My career is set up. I've got my house. I have my possessions. I'm just where I want to be. And then I'll follow Jesus. Then I'll follow after you. Then you can lead me wherever you want to go. But I got to get all these things straight first. So Jesus puts up an obstacle, a hurdle in front of you and says, that's not exactly the way it is on this road. One, two things are going to happen. Either you're going to learn to deal with that road or you're going to fall into the ditch on the left. 
Now, the third man comes along, and I don't know if this is possible, but there's a third ditch. We have a ditch on the left, we have a ditch on the right, we have a ditch behind. Because that's the one this man's going to fall into, because the world still has way too much of a pull on him. He's taking his eyes off of his destination. And the world that he left is appealing to him, and the comforts and all of what was wrapped up in the other two seems to be pulling this man back. And he wants to go back and get entangled in those situations again. And again, if it's possible, there's a third ditch. Because as soon as you turn around, that obstacle, you're going to fall in that ditch or else you're going to deal with that obstacle. Do you, do you see how these various um, ideas or these various pieces fit together? Do you, do you see how discipleship is something that is scattered throughout the Gospels and we're beginning to put together this concept of radical discipleship, the radical call of Christ? And brothers and sisters, it's serious business. Because Jesus says that he's the vine. It's his body. He's the head. We're his. He says, abide in me and I will abide in you. He's the vine. We're the branches of that vine. And and he says, one of two things is going to happen to those branches. Okay. All over and over again, you're going to meet obstacles on the narrow road going to the celestial city as Pilgrim's Progress has it. You're going to meet obstacles and you're going to have to either contend with them, deal with them, repent, grow in Christ and become the kind of disciple that he wants you to be. Or you're going to end up in a ditch. And my father's the vine dresser, he says. And what he does is he comes to the vine and he prunes it. Now, for those who fall into the ditch, for those who turn around, for those who stop, he just cuts the dead wood out. And like I said, we're talking discipleship now. So it's not that you lose your salvation because you didn't gain your salvation on your own in the first place. You just get set aside, folks. You just get to watch the kingdom of heaven progress from a parking place. And your treasure is not in heaven where moth and, and rust do not destroy, but it's here on earth. And I'm not saying you're not going to have treasure in heaven, but your impact on the growth and the building of the kingdom of God while you're here will be negligible. You're cut out because you're dead wood and because you're just slowing down the vine. But if you remain on the vine, you're going to be pruned brothers and sisters, and it's just a fact of life. It's just a fact of what it means to be a disciple because Jesus wants radical disciples. He wants kingdom builders. Do you, do you, under, you understand that, don't you? He wants kingdom builders, not, not holders on. I mean, he's not going to throw you away because you're in his hand and he loves you and he will keep you. But he, he, he wants those who are really truthfully going to follow him wherever he leads. And so, therefore, he's calling us all to... Radical discipleship. So let me leave you with this. Jesus has called you. If you are a kingdom dweller, if you were his, if you have been saved, born again, given him your life and soul, if he is your Lord and your Savior, then he has called you into obedience to him. He's called you through the narrow gate. And he's called you onto the hard road. The very road that the health and wealth gospel preachers make a mockery of. That's where he's called you. And he's warned you that if you don't count the cost, 
there's a ditch on the right. And he's warned you, if you do count the cost and find it too much, then you're going to fall into the ditch on the left. And that you can't go back because when you pick up your cross and follow him, there's no going back. So what he says is fixate, cross that field, down that road, to that celestial city, where that gate is, and where Jesus stands, and he beckons you, and he says, come home, good and faithful servant, over whatever hurdles I put in your way. Of anything you have to deal with. Whatever pruning the father does. You come home. And don't lose sight. Of my celestial city. That brothers and sisters. Is starting to put together. The discipleship puzzle. Let's pray. Father. Um, discipleship is another word. That has been so horribly abused. Over the years that we um, hardly know what it means. And I know that my words sound harsh. But my words pale next to yours. Because you are very straightforward about this. You don't pull any punches. And you don't pull punches in the rest of this gospel. And, and the rest of this time that you're talking to us about what it means to be a disciple. I just pray that you would give me the courage and the, and the, 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 the emotional wherewithal to bring it forward exactly as it is. And not to water it down at all. Not to soften it. Because if there's really one thing that the church needs to understand right now, it's that you have called us to discipleship. And you've called us to be kingdom builders and not just kingdom squatters. And we pray that you would make us a church full of kingdom builders, giving you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.